Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. We're honored and pleased to be joined again today by author, historian, and foreign policy analyst Max Boot. Max is the Gene Kirkpatrick Senior Fellow in National Security Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's a columnist for The Washington Post and a global affairs analyst for CNN. Max is also the author of six books, including The Corrosion of Conservatism, Why I Left the Right. Welcome again, Max. Great to be back. So there, there really are two somewhat complicated foreign policy issues that have now hijacked the political debate uh, in the U.S. And I want to spend a couple minutes uh, on each of them and, you know, for our listeners to get a better understanding of what's going on there. So let's start with Syria. Why was the U.S. in northern Syria? Well, we were basically there to fight Islamic State, which, of course, was this terrible terrorist group that took over a good portion of Syria and Iraq and started massacring uh, minorities like the Turkoman and the Christians and were threatening to march on Baghdad before President Obama decided to intervene. And he decided not to send large numbers of U.S. troops in the way that we had done in Iraq previously. And instead, President Obama's strategy was to send enablers, U.S. air power and U.S. advisors to work with local forces on the ground to fight Islamic State. And in Iraq, those forces, that was the Iraqi armed forces. But in Syria, we couldn't cooperate with the Syrian armed forces because that's a genocidal outfit led by Bashar Assad. So we worked with the Kurds on the ground in northern Syria, and they did a tremendous job. They suffered heavy casualties, and every Kurd that was killed was an American soldier who was not in the line of fire. With the Kurds on the front lines, they routed Islamic State out of their lairs in Manbij and in Raqqa and in other cities in northern Syria and essentially allowed us to crush the Islamic State's caliphate without risking American ground troops. So the Kurds have been incredibly valuable allies to the United States. I mean, you have Donald Trump saying, oh, they weren't with us in Normandy. Well, that's true, but they've been with us a lot more recently than Normandy in 1944. And so simply put, cooperating with the Kurds and our allies as the Kurds made it safer for us at home. Yes, it enabled us to defeat this terrible terrorist group that was threatening our interests and our allies in the Middle East without risking large numbers of American ground troops, without risking a repeat of the Iraq war. So allying ourselves with the, with the Kurds was a great deal for the United States. So let's add a player here. Who are the Kurds and why are the Kurds and Turkey at odds? Well, the Kurds are one of the largest stateless groups in the entire world. There's about 30 million Kurds and they're spread across countries like Syria, Iraq, Turkey, Iran. And they're basically in conflict with all those countries because the Kurds want their own state. And all those states don't want to give up any territory to the Kurds. And, of course, in Turkey, they've had a long-running insurgency led by a Turkish group called the PKK, the Kurdish Workers' Party. And there are links between the PKK, the, 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 the Turkish Kurds, and the Syrian Kurds organized in the YPG, which is the uh, unit that the United States worked with to defeat Islamic State. So – President Erdogan of Turkey 
basically has been freaked out to see this Kurdish autonomous zone, this quasi-state being created in northern Syria, and he wants to crush it. He wants to go in there with military force. And so there is a conflict between the Kurds and the Turks, but the Turks have not been very good allies to the United States recently. They've been playing footsie with Russia and Iran, whereas the Kurds have been tremendous allies. They are secular, they are moderate, and they have done the heavy lifting in battling Islamic State. So up until now, U.S. policy has tilted towards the Kurds for understandable reasons because they were actually achieving our strategic objectives. And standing between Turkey and the Kurds was this small U.S. force. Right, a very small force, fewer than 1,000 U.S. soldiers in Syria, probably only about 150 or something like that in, in, in northernmost Syria. But it was an incredibly important symbolic presence. So there was no way that Erdogan was going to send the Turkish army into northern Syria if there were U.S. troops standing in the way. Turkey is not going to fight the United States, which is a fellow member of NATO, and they know what we can do to their forces if they attack our troops. So that's why Erdogan asked Donald Trump's permission to go into northern Syria. And Donald Trump, for reasons that are mysterious, we still don't fully understand why he did it, he gave the Turks the green light by pulling U.S. troops off the front lines. And that is what has led us to our current geopolitical disaster with our Kurdish allies getting slaughtered and ISIS detainees being freed. We're going to come back to that, but let's add one more element to this. You described Assad and the Syrian regime as a genocidal regime. They've used chemical weapons on their own people. That I think people understand that. How does Russia play into this? Russia has been backing the Assad regime. If it weren't for Russian support and Iranian support, Assad would have fallen long ago. So Russia has a stake in expanding Bashar Assad's influence, and that has been one of the consequences entirely foreseen of President Trump's decision to abandon the Kurds. The Kurds need friends and allies to try to counter this Turkish invasion, and so they've looked for help to the Syrian regime forces, these genocidal thugs that have killed so many innocent people in Syria. So now the Kurds have invited the Syrian regime forces and their Russian advisors and backers and mercenaries to take over the U.S. positions in northern Syria. And therefore, you see very dispiriting images on Twitter coming out of these Russian mercenaries basically taking a victory lap around bases that the U.S. troops had to hastily abandon in the last few days. So it seems that Syria and northern Syria is a kind of a microcosm of the geopolitical push and pull, the U.S. versus Russia, Iran, Turkey, NATO— Lots of involvement. While it's complicated, you just explained it very simply. I have to assume that Donald Trump understands the geopolitical influence. So let's— I wouldn't assume that how much Donald Trump understands about anything, but, yeah. he, but he should understand it. Let's put it that way. For the sake of this argument, let's yes. assume that he understands it. So let's go to that phone call that Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening where President Erdogan and Donald Trump had a call. Tell us what happened. We don't know what happened. We have not seen a transcript. And, you know, look at the way Trump behaved with Ukraine, which we have seen the transcript. We saw that he put his own personal political interest ahead of the interest of the American people. So we don't know if he may have done that again in the case of Turkey. I mean, remember that Donald Trump himself said in 2015, this is Donald Trump talking. He said, I have a little conflict of interest when it comes to Turkey because Donald Trump owns two Trump Towers in Istanbul. He gets revenues 
from those towers in Istanbul. I don't think he actually owns them, but he, he derives revenue from licensing his name to those twin towers. And of course, Putin is in the middle of all this. Erdogan talked to Putin before talking to Trump. We don't know, Joe, what transpired on that phone call. We need to. We somehow need to get that transcript because based on the evidence of the last month, we cannot trust that Donald Trump was acting on behalf of the national security of the United States. What he did was completely indefensible. His entire administration was against what he did. The Pentagon had no idea what he was doing. Everybody was blindsided. So why did Trump suddenly make this massive concession to this anti-American dictator, Erdogan? We don't know. So I think you rightly point out that the entire apparatus of U.S. foreign policy was against this. They had worked very hard to work out this very complicated and delicate arrangement with the Kurds that protected them and also but protected our interests there. So let's talk about – if we don't know what Trump said on that call, let's talk about the impact of that call. The call happens on a Sunday night. I believe Monday morning the president says we're pulling out – well, we don't know what Trump said on the call, but we do know that he had the call on a Sunday night and then put out a statement, something rare on a Sunday night for something this important, saying we were pulling out of Syria, shocking the world and even shocking his own government. Talk about what happened next. Well, a series of catastrophes unfolded, which were entirely predictable. It was exactly what Trump's own aides and outside analysts had predicted would happen. The Turks move in all of a sudden. Uh, the Kurds start getting slaughtered, not just by the Turks, but also by their uh, Arab militias that they have in, in tow with them, in, in many of them actually jihadists. So they're slaughtering Kurds. The Kurds are having to pull forces back out of these prisons where they're guarding ISIS detainees. And so all of a sudden, you have ISIS detainees escaping. And then the Kurds have no choice but to ask the Syrian regime with its Russian and Iranian backers for help. Otherwise, they're going to be completely massacred by the Turks. And so you have what was once this relatively stable, moderate, secular, American-aligned zone in, in, in northern Syria comprising about a third of the country has now collapsed within the course of a single week. And that area is now being divided between the brutal anti-American forces of Syria and Turkey and you know, America's allies have been left in the lurch. So let's look at some of the impacts a little more closely. There are now ISIS prisoners free because of this. Right. What threat do they pose to the United States? Well, these are some of the most dangerous terrorists in the world, and they've carried out atrocities not only in Iraq and Syria, uh, but they've also carried out terrorist plots all over the world. There are about 10 or 11,000 ISIS prisoners in Kurdish custody, about 2,000 of those are foreigners. And, and there was no plan to secure the custody of those extremely dangerous terrorists. In fact, the U.S. forces were initially planning to take 60 of these high-value detainees with them to make sure they didn't escape. But the U.S. forces had to leave so rapidly because they were coming under artillery fire from the Turks. They had to leave so rapidly they could not take these detainees with them. And Donald Trump's reaction has been mind-boggling. He basically said, oh, well, a lot of these detainees, they're Europeans, so they're going to go to Europe, so who cares? Like, we don't care if there are terrorist attacks carried out in Europe or as if it's impossible for these terrorists to get from Europe to the United States. I mean, this is crazy. This is incredibly dangerous what is happening. And a lot of experts are predicting that you're going to see a revival of Islamic State after it had been almost defeated over the course of the last five years. 
And from a geopolitical point of view, why should we be concerned that Russia and Iran's influence in Syria has increased exponentially in the last week to 10 days? Well, this is a, a geopolitical disaster because these countries are very hostile to American interests. They also have no respect for human rights. Russia and Iran have been perpetrators of horrible massacres in Syria. There was just evidence that came out showing conclusively that Russian air forces have been bombing hospitals, just killing innocent patients indiscriminately. I mean, so this is a, a human rights disaster, but it's also a disaster for American strategic interests. I mean, one of our closest allies is Israel, and Donald Trump claims to be pro-Israel. But what he's basically doing is he is increasing the power of Iran on Israel's doorstep. That is a massive danger to Israel. And by the way, the Israelis are, are feeling pretty freaked out because they're seeing the way that Donald Trump abandoned our Kurdish allies. So they're wondering if they're next. And the larger context here is nobody's going to be able to trust the United States and specifically President Trump going forward because we're seeing how he is subordinating American foreign policy to his own political interests. He shows no loyalty to anybody. He betrays friends on a whim. Why would anybody stand with the United States? And so you're going to see this massive scuttle, I think, around the world where all these countries are going to reposition themselves so they're no longer reliant upon the United States. And this is going to be a huge win for our enemies in places like Russia, Iran, and China. Many of the traditional guardrails of American foreign policy have been destroyed in the Trump administration. Talk a little bit about John Bolton. He seemed to have some sway earlier in the year on the president and this policy, and then he left. Uh, are there no adults left in the room? None. I mean, Trump has gotten rid of anybody who would stand up to him. And, you know, I have a lot of disagreements with Bolton. I mean, I think he's crazy to advocate war with Iran and North Korea. But I will, you know, say this in Bolton's behalf. I think he sincerely believes what he believes. He has principles as he himself sees it. And Donald Trump doesn't. I mean, he, he just does whatever is in Donald Trump's personal self-interest that day, at least what Donald Trump thinks is in his personal self-interest. And so I think that Bolton increasingly clashed with Trump because Bolton could not stand it when Trump said he was in love with Kim Jong-un, this brutal North Korean dictator. Bolton could not stand it when Donald Trump allowed Iran to attack Saudi Arabia uh, without retaliating. And so Bolton, I think, became increasingly critical internally and and, and Trump got rid of him. You know, remember what, what Lyndon Johnson used to say, it's better to have somebody on the inside of the tent pissing out than on the outside of the tent pissing in. And now John Bolton is outside the tent, and he is going to be a very valuable witness for this House impeachment inquiry because he was there seeing the way that Trump and his personal lawyer, Rudolph Giuliani, hijacked America's policy towards Ukraine in order to gather dirt on Joe Biden. So we're going to get to Ukraine in a minute. Let's shift to really just speculating. Uh, and I want to be clear that I'll speculate, you'll speculate. But I think people— Let's uh, speculate together, Joe. Let's speculate together. There we go. There's got to be a tune there. Yeah. Uh, let's call the whole thing off. Anyway, give me your best sense of Trump's motives here. I mean, it's hard for me to believe that the licensing agreement on two Turk hotels is— a, So my nose goes to Russia and Putin and— the seemingly unexplainable stranglehold that Putin has over Trump. But speculate for a second on what it could be and, it, you know, as many theories as you might have. Well, we don't know what it is. The one thing I'm pretty sure it's not is a carefully considered calculus about what is in America's best interest. That's not what this is about. This is all about Donald Trump. We know that he only looks out for number one. 
whatever he does has to be in his personal self-interest, not necessarily in the country's larger interest. So it could be, as he said, he has a conflict of interest with these towers that uh, he derives revenue from in Istanbul. Putin is involved in this, and, and Donald Trump has shown a mystifying and uh, troubling subservience to Vladimir Putin. The other thing it's not, by the way, is it's not a consistent isolationism because the very same week that Trump is withdrawing from Syria, he's sending 2,000 more troops to Saudi Arabia. So how do you justify that? I mean, you're abandoning the Kurds who fought with us, who bled with us, who defeated ISIS, and you're helping out the Saudis who murdered Jamal Khashoggi. I mean, what kind of moral universe do we live in where that's okay? The only connecting thread I can see here is that Trump basically does whatever dictators tell him to do. Erdogan told him to pull out of Syria. He did. Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman asked him to send more troops to Saudi Arabia, and he does. Again, we don't really know what happened, but one possible common theme is simply Donald Trump's admiration for and subservience to some of the world's worst dictators. If it's Trump's admiration for authoritarian and absolute power— is that something for us to worry about at home, not from a foreign policy point of view, but from a sense that Trump is going to try to imitate and gather power in such a way? Because again, I think I think what you described is the most realistic guess that somehow, you know, a duly elected Democratic president or prime minister Trump sees as weak, someone who wields power, kills his own people, and decides in my, what was it, my untold wisdom or whatever the, the my, phrase my was. My great and unmatched wisdom. My great and unmatched wisdom. What kind of threat does that co- cause to our system here? It's it's a real threat, Joe. I mean, I, I've said before that I think Donald Trump has an authoritarian personality. And if he had been taking over Italy, let's say, in the 1920s, there is no question in my mind he would have been a dictator already. Now, the good news is that the United States is one of the most stable and durable democracies in the world. We have very strong institutions like the courts and the press that act as as checks upon the, the executive branch and, of course, now Congress as well, now that the House is in democratic hands. So there's no question that Donald Trump is chipping away at our norms and our traditions and our laws. Look at the way that he attacks the the free press as the enemy of the American people. I mean, that's a phrase borrowed from Joseph Stalin. And he has certainly tried to retaliate against his perceived media enemies, the way that he is, you know, ratcheting up racial and and, and nativist hatred and all the things that he is doing to try to run roughshod over the law, for example, declaring a national emergency to build a wall that we don't need for his own political purposes. All of this is an ongoing threat to our republic, to our rule of law. So far, I would say our institutions are holding up under the stress test. And they are largely, I would say, keeping him in check. But if he survives the impeachment process, if he gets reelected, which is very, very possible, all bets are off. I don't know what's going to happen in the next four years. But if this is what he's done in his first term, facing the the prospect of reelection, I mean, can you imagine what he would do without having to face the voters again? I don't want to imagine it, but it's a very real thing. And we have to as we go to the polls next year. I think it's a very real Before I get to Ukraine, one last question on Syria. Impeachment's a political decision. So, and the president has every right under the Constitution on Article 1 to withdraw troops. He's the commander in chief. But taking it out of politics, if you compare Syria, his behavior in Syria and his behavior in Ukraine, which is more dangerous to us? That's a great question, Joe. Very hard one to answer. I mean, I think they're 
dangerous on different levels. And as you rightly say, what he did in Syria, I think, is a, is a tragedy, a catastrophe, and a mistake. But it's not impeachable conduct because the president does have the power to make dumb decisions. That's not against the Constitution. But what he did in Ukraine, while the, the human cost of what he did in Ukraine is lower and, and less visible, it's not – you don't see these pictures on the news of – of people getting killed because of Donald Trump's actions, which you are seeing from northern Syria. But the threat from Ukraine in some ways is even greater to our constitutional republic because Donald Trump – this is just as blatant an example as you could possibly imagine of a president serving his self-interest at the expense of the public interest, exactly what the founders feared, exactly the reason why they put the impeachment clause into the constitution because Donald Trump – has been pressuring a vulnerable and friendly state to help him politically in withholding U.S. aid, which was voted by Congress for very good reasons to help Ukraine defend itself from Russia. Donald Trump has was holding up that aid to use that essentially to blackmail the Ukrainians into intervening in the U.S. political process. This is a threat to the integrity of the presidency of the American political process of the U.S. electoral system. That's why Democrats had no choice but to move forward with impeachment, whatever the consequences are, you cannot go to an election when the president of the United States is actively trying to get foreign interference on his behalf. We cannot have a free and fair election under those circumstances. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about Ukraine taking a step back from the politics. What is Ukraine's strategic interest to the United States? Well, Ukraine is, is very important because it's one of the largest countries in Europe. It's a country where the people rose up and overthrew a pro-Russian strongman and installed a democratic government. Uh, they just had an election to change a government, a new president, President Zelensky, who's taken over. And Ukraine is essentially Western in its orientation. And that's why Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014. The Russians seized Crimea, which is a peninsula in Ukraine. This is as blatant an act of territorial aggression as you could possibly imagine. And the Russians have also sponsored these proxy groups in eastern Ukraine who have taken over the eastern part of the country. And there's a war going on there, which we don't pay a lot of attention to. But there have been something like 10,000 fatalities in this Ukrainian war, which is really a war of Russian aggression. Uh, and so the United States policy pretty consistently has been to stand with the Ukrainians. All of our friends and allies in NATO have taken the same attitude, that this is cross-border aggression by the Russians against a pro-Russian democratic country. And so we need to stop the Russians in Ukraine before they move on to the Baltic republics, which are NATO members or other states. This is learning the lessons of the 1930s. You cannot allow this kind of aggression by dictators to go unchecked. Now, when you talk about Ukrainians, it's not a monolithic group. There are certainly a significant portion of the population that aligns themselves with Russia. And a significant portion that aligns themselves with Western Europe, with the United States. How does that play into all of this? Well, Ukraine, as, as you alluded to, is split. Uh, it has Russian speakers and it has Ukrainian speakers. It has uh, a, a divide in the population and, and the Russian speakers are heavily concentrated in the eastern part of Ukraine, which is where the Russians have fomented troubles creating these proxy groups. And they're doing essentially what Hitler did in the 1930s by claiming to champion German minorities outside of Germany and using that as a pretext for German aggression. And that's what Putin has done by pretending that somehow these Russian speakers in Ukraine are victims of 
of the government. But in fact, Ukraine is a democracy where everybody is represented and most people want to be pro-Western. They want to be a democracy. They don't want to be subservient to Russia. So what Putin is doing is really from the dictator, classic dictator playbook. So the European Union and the United States are firmly behind Ukraine. The U.S. Congress in a bipartisan move uh, appropriates roughly $400 million of military aid. Tell us how that got stuck. Well, that's a great question. And evidently what happened, and we're, we're learning a lot about this, is that this summer the aid was held up by President Trump essentially to use that as a cudgel to force the Ukrainians to A, provide dirt on Joe Biden, and B, the really bizarre part, to somehow absolve Russia of hacking the 2016 election. Totally bizarre, totally inappropriate, but— And totally fictional. Totally fictional, yes. This is just a a figment of the right-wing conspiratorial imagination. But there is no doubt, the evidence is overwhelming, that Trump held up aid for this very purpose. And we've seen that come out in the whistleblower complaint. You saw Trump alluding to it in his July 25th phone call to President Zelensky, where President Zelensky says, I would like to get Javelin anti-tank missiles— And Trump, the very next words out of Trump's mouth are, I would like you to do us a favor, though. Now, okay, Trump did not say, I would like a quid pro quo, but I would like you to do us a favor, though, is the English equivalent of the Latin phrase quid pro quo. That's what Trump did. He was very explicitly tying U.S. aid to the willingness of this country to do his political bidding. And we've seen more details emerge on that from the current senior American diplomat in Kiev, from the former ambassador in Kiev from the U.S. ambassador to the European Union, this major donor that that Trump put in charge of of, of policy from Rudolph Giuliani. And in fact, Giuliani, Trump's lawyer, he was not subtle about this. He was actually going around in the press earlier in the summer basically making clear that he wanted dirt from Ukraine on Joe Biden. So this was uh, not a well-hidden plot. This was happening in almost plain sight. How badly does Ukraine need this aid? I mean, how much leverage did Trump have over the new president? It's massive leverage because Ukraine desperately needs American assistance. Otherwise, it's going to get gobbled up by Russia. It cannot stand against a country like Russia on its own. It needs that American aid. And it also needs not just the physical military aid. It needs the moral and political support the United States can provide, which is why it's so significant that we learned that Trump was holding hostage not only the $400 million in military aid, but also a White House meeting that President Zelensky of Ukraine really wanted. And it was very, very clear from the text messages that we've seen that were exchanged among Kurt Volker, the former U.S. envoy to Ukraine, and Gordon Sondland, the the, the US, U.S. ambassador to the EU. They were making very clear that unless the Ukrainians explicitly pledged to investigate this company where Hunter Biden was on the board, there was no way they were going to get the White House meeting or the $400 million of aid. So this is as clear an example of an impeachable offense as you can possibly imagine. So the Ukrainian president would really do almost anything to get this military aid and the public support U.S. embrace. Absolutely. I mean, Trump had an awful lot of leverage over Zelensky, and he used that leverage not to achieve U.S. foreign policy goals. For example, there is a genuine U.S. foreign policy goal in fighting corruption in Ukraine. That's a legitimate thing. But that's not what Trump was doing. He was not fighting corruption. He was fomenting corruption. He was asking the Ukrainians to act 
corruptly. And as we've since learned, there are actually multiple layers to that corruption because Rudolph Giuliani, uh, the president's lawyer, was also in league with these crooks from the former Soviet Union who have now been arrested and charged with you know, massive violations of U.S. campaign finance laws, and they were trying to benefit financially from all these activities. We know that Giuliani got something like half a million dollars from one of these guys. So there were all these different agendas that were going on in, in, in U.S. policy towards Ukraine. The one agenda that the senior levels were not pursuing was the agenda of the American people. So we hear a lot about a shadow foreign policy. Explain, if you can, why the president's personal lawyer, Rudolph Giuliani, and one of the president's big fundraisers who's sitting as the ambassador to the EU that has no line responsibility for Ukraine policy, but is talking to the president, how did they hijack our foreign policy here? They hijacked it because Donald Trump let them do it. And there is, I mean, that tells you right there when Rudolph Giuliani and Gordon Sondland are on the front lines of U.S.-Ukrainian policy, you know it's fishy. It's illegitimate. It's not proper. It's not right. They are not in the chain of command. They bypassed U.S. diplomats. They bypassed the National Security Council. They got the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine fired because she would not play ball with them. This is all about politics. This is not about American foreign policy. What is Vladimir Putin sitting in Moscow thinking right now? He's probably laughing like crazy. He's probably got a Cheshire cat grin on his face every hour of the day because, you know, he is humiliating the United States from Ukraine to Syria and elsewhere. Donald Trump claims that he's making America great. I don't see any evidence of that, but I see a lot of evidence that he is making Russia great because the consequence of his decisions is basically to decrease American credibility and standing and increase Russian credibility and standing. I mean, one of Putin's lines that he uses all the time is to say the United States is an unreliable partner. He goes around the world telling other countries, you should align with Russia because we will stand with you. You can't trust the Americans. Well, Donald Trump is proving that in spades as we speak. And you see Putin taking a victory lap around the Persian Gulf, you know, being fated as a, as a visiting potentate by these countries that are traditional American allies. So a lot of presidents try to establish some doctrine that defines their foreign policy. You know, there was the Bush doctrine there. There was the, the, the Clinton doctrine. There was Obama's don't do stupid shit. How would you label the Trump doctrine? Well, you know, Trump uh, always wants to do the opposite of Obama. And so if the Obama doctrine was don't do stupid shit, I think the Trump doctrine may be do stupid shit. One more broad question on foreign policy, then I want to get into some of the politics here to wrap up. U.S. foreign policy post-Trump, how do we rebuild and recover? It'll be very difficult, and it gets more difficult the longer that Donald Trump stays in office. I mean, look, big picture here, U.S. power was in relative decline anyway, and Americans were getting tired of this burden of leading the world. You saw President Obama pursuing a lead-from-behind foreign policy and you've seen the growing power of China and other states that are challenging the United States. So we're not the hegemon that we were 20 or 30 years ago. But what Donald Trump is doing right now is he is vastly accelerating American decline because he is destroying American standing and credibility around the world. A lot of our power used to derive from soft power, from this notion that we were standing for human rights, for freedom, that we stood for ideals higher than ourselves. Who can have that confidence going forward after Donald Trump has pursued what he calls his America first foreign policy, but which is really 
me first foreign policy, Donald Trump first foreign policy. I mean, the kind of the way that Donald Trump has hijacked U.S. foreign policy to serve his own self-interest, the inconsistency, uh, the betrayal of allies, the subservience to dictators. I mean, he is doing very grave long-term damage to U.S. foreign policy. And, you know, it's going to be very difficult to pick up the pieces. If he wins another term, I, I can't even imagine what the consequences are going to be. Well, politics will determine that. So let's talk a little politics before we wrap up. I noticed your book, The Corrosion of Conservatism, Why I Left the Right, is not why I left the Republican Party. So let me start with the right. What has happened to the right in this country that there doesn't seem to be a an ideological objection to what seemed to be the foundation of the conservative movement over the last at least two generations, post-World War II? That's a great question, Joe, and that's that's been a source of considerable angst and confusion for me over the course of the last few years uh, because you've seen not just the Republican Party but various conservative movement figures bend the knee to Donald Trump even as he was doing violence to much of what they purported to stand for in the past. I mean you see it with these evangelicals who are backing the most flagrantly immoral president of, of our lifetime or free marketeers who are backing a president who is starting trade wars left, right, and center, or national security hawks who are backing a president who is selling out our allies and, and, and kissing up to dictators. It doesn't make any rational sense. The only way I can make sense of it is to say that it's all tribal. And basically, conservatives and Republicans are all about protecting the tribe, and Donald Trump is now a member of their tribe, and so they will stand behind him through thick and thin. But, you know, I'm somebody who grew up as a Reagan Republican in the 1980s, I thought the Republican Party stood for something. I thought the conservative movement stood for something. And this has been a very disillusioning, very difficult time for me. It's really caused me to question the political allegiances I've had throughout the course of my adult life. And I can't just say, oh, well, you know, the conservative movement or the Republican Party, I disagree with them over Donald Trump, but otherwise they're a great bunch of people. No, I mean, anybody who can actually back somebody as loathsome as the president and the way that he behaves, that really causes me to have second thoughts about who are these people? They're not the people I thought they were. And so I can't identify with that, with either the Republican Party or the conservative movement anymore. I'm, I mean, I'm not a Democrat either. I'm, I'm politically uh, homeless at the moment. I'm, I'm a moderate independent. Well, there's always a home for you at Words Matter. So let's talk about the Republican Party. I, I, I'm going to assume that the Democrats will move forward with impeachment. How do Republicans in the Senate handle what we know is already a very strong case for an impeachable offense that gets stronger every single day? My assumption is they'll ignore the evidence. I think that's how they'll handle it. Look, I think the question of whether they're going to be Republicans voting to to remove Donald Trump is going to be based on one metric, and it's not the evidence. The metric is going to be the polls, in particular, what the polls show about Trump standing among Republicans. Now, you've seen a massive shift in the polls with the American public coming out by a majority in support of impeachment and removal. That's been a huge move over the last few weeks. But the Republicans are still standing behind Trump. He still has more than 80 percent support among Republicans. As long as that's the case, I suspect you will see very few, very, very few profiles and courage in the Senate. So 
I, I was very unpopular with a lot of my friends on the left when in April I wrote a piece for the New York Times saying don't impeach the president. This was before Ukraine. I, I've subsequently had to write a second piece for the New York Times explaining why I've shifted. But part of my argument was as a partisan that I think that Donald Trump is killing the Republican Party and that forcing the Republicans to go to the polls in 2020 with Trump as their standard bearer is good, not just for Democrats, but good for the country because I believe in progressive politics and progressive policies. How do you view the Republican Party now and is there a way for them to save themselves? Long term, I think the Republican Party is doomed because of the demographic shifts we're seeing in this country. By the 2040s, we're going to be a majority-minority country. The Republican Party is becoming increasingly the party of white nationalism. So that's not a tenable long-term position. But what Donald Trump showed in 2016 against all odds and what he could show again in 2020 is that he can still squeeze out a victory from these kind of riled-up white people who form his base. And I certainly would not rule him out. And I would not make any predictions at this point about which way things are going to go because I'm somebody who counted Donald Trump out in 2016. He showed that I was wrong. He could easily survive everything that's going on right now. And my real concern is that the Democrats may wind up helping him out because if they nominate somebody like Elizabeth Warren, which is the way it looks like things are going right now, my concern is that Warren could wind up as a punching bag for Trump because Trump has very few skills. He knows almost nothing about public policy or the duties of his office, but he is a very skilled demagogue. He knows how to counterpunch. He knows how to find his opponent's weaknesses. And my concern is that Elizabeth Warren, although she's an appealing figure in many ways, her politics have gone so far to the left where she's talked about decriminalizing illegal immigration. She wants to nationalize all health care, destroy the private insurance industry, the, the Green New Deal, which is a massive economic dislocation. My concern is that she will set herself up to be caricatured by Donald Trump as an open border socialist. There's no way that Donald Trump can win by increasing his popularity. I think there is a hard ceiling on his approval ratings. Most Americans can't stand him. The only way he wins is if he can make people more afraid of the alternative than they are of him, and I wouldn't rule that out. Yeah, I, I, I will agree that his skill is demonizing his opponent and making a caricature, and I think he'll do that with whoever. He'll try to do that. It's an open question of who's an easier target and who's not. Let me finish by asking, I'm old enough to remember when Jerry Ford said that Poland wasn't uh, dominated by the Soviet Union. <laughs> and, you know, in a lot of respects, that cost him the election because right. people thought he just, what's happened? Where did American common sense go over the last 50 years? That's a great question. I mean, you think about the stuff that was a big scandal in, in prior administrations. And, you know, it wasn't just Jerry Ford saying that there was no Soviet domination of Eastern Europe. I mean, it was, you know, Barack Obama wearing a tan suit and Fox News hyperventilated for days about that. And you get this with, with Trump. It's hard to keep up. I mean, there's literally a scandal a day. I mean, just last week, I'll just give you one example. Last week, there was a story in The New York Times that Donald Trump at the behest of Rudy Giuliani and, and former Attorney General Michael Mukasey tried to free the shady Turkish businessman who was locked up on, on charges of violating U.S. sanctions on Iran. And the only reason that didn't happen was because Rex Tillerson, then the Secretary of State, stood in the way and said, no, this would be wrong. I, I'm not going to do this. 
Now, in any other administration, uh, Joe, this would have been a scandal that would have gone on for weeks. And this one, it's already forgotten a week later because there's so many bigger scandals going on. I mean, what this recalls to me is is some of the stuff that Republicans were saying when Bill Clinton uh, was being impeached. As I seem to recall, Bill Bennett wrote a book called The Death of Outrage, bemoaning the supposed fall of American standards. And I don't know if the if the Clinton impeachment was an example of that or not, but I'm pretty sure what's going on right now, that is truly the death of outrage. And of course, one of the many outrages going on right now is that people like Bill Bennett, who was an arch moralist scold in the late 1990s, has now become a Trump sycophant defending whatever Trump does. It's just appalling. It's, it's, it's horrifying. And it augurs, I think, very poorly for our future. Well, Max, there's no doubt that you're outraged. I think a lot of our listeners are outraged. And we appreciate your time. And uh, hopefully you can come back soon. But thank you very much. Thanks for having me back. I've always got a home here. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.